Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. I saw my buddy Jill out in the park, out in Freedom Park the other day, and she said she really enjoyed the podcast, and she had listened to the episodes with my therapist, Tammy Bell, with my buddy Mimi, and with Joan. Um, So several different of the recovery episodes, kind of a theme that weaves into the old podcast here. Um, That means so much to me. I mean, that's that that means so much to me that people get something out of the podcast um tell a friend if you feel the same way and also you know reviews a lot of times we live and die by the reviews i would i would love it if you haven't given a review to give a review to the podcast i am so grateful to you just for listening i think there's a lot in it for all of us for the women who are who are interviewed for me and and also for you, hopefully for you, you get a lot of benefit, especially out of today's episode. Here it is. <laughs> we all have stuff that we're dealing with, and who are we to judge people and whatever. So when we start treating people like less than human beings, this is when we're going to have some trouble. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back man listening because every woman deserves to be heard hey there i'm Stuart watson welcome to man listening uh this morning uh this afternoon wherever you are uh tara brown uh tara brown is a wonderful comic but she's had a rich life in public relations and sports um funny uh but we talk serious we talk about her faith and how she was called upon to really used that faith when the rubber met the road when her mother uh, was shot uh, in New York City. Uh, she grew up in Brooklyn and the Bronx and uh, now she's been called the, the godmother of Queen City comedy right here in the QC and um, she's not the queen bee, she's the godmother. She's really encouraging and nurturing in a in a profession and artistic enterprise where a lot of people are cutthroat and insecure and she she is just um she calls it family friendly comedy which is another way um it's another way just like kind of her own area uh i've talked too much tara brown where were you born brooklyn new york my beloved brooklyn hospital or home Hospital, Cumberland Hospital, which no longer exists, which has been a problem for me because I can't get a hold of my birth certificate. That's a whole other podcast show. You can't find you it? Like the city of New York has okay, lost your let's, birth certificate? let's get could into Could it be this. that you were like immaculate conception? There no, could let, be... let me tell you what happened. Okay, I want to hear it. On my birth certificate, some nurse got fancy with my name and as opposed to spelling it T-A-R-A, she spelled it T-A-R-R-A. Uh-huh. My poor mom, because she had just given birth, she didn't have time to figure out that it was wrong. 
So I've been going through all these years trying to get a birth certificate. I had it at one time, but the state of New York, every time I try to get it online, the state of New York is like, we don't recognize this person. I'm like, of course you don't, because that's not me. And Cumberland Hospital doesn't exist anymore. So this has been an, a thing. So I wish Cumberland Hospital actually still existed. Well, does this mean you can't tour Europe or something? Can oh, you get a, I will find a way. Can you? Do you have a passport? I had a passport, and then again, silly me, let it expire, forgetting that I had issues with my birth certificate. So I need some help with that. So I'm going to figure it out. Do you know who your member of Congress is? Uh, is it Alma Adams? I think it is. It is her. Okay. They have constituent services. They will. They will help. See. I did yes, this. Yes, thank you. I, I did, did this. Uh, this, I, this is what I did. I came here to talk about one thing, and the I'm, problem you solver, <gasps> the problem solver. Do so you, all you do oh is you pick God. up the phone. This is my mind is so blown right now, and we yeah. just got into this. Yeah, that's thank why you. they. That's why you pay your income that's taxes. True. Assuming exactly. Assuming. <laughs> well, let me let me say before I call her. <laughs> let me make sure. <laughs> <laughs> she might have me on the list, like, um, get that together first. Yes. No, but thank you. That's helpful to know. So do you think of yourself as a New Yorker? I am so, like, I love being from New York. People are sick of me saying I'm from New York. I don't care. I love everything about being from New York. And I'll tell you why. I think, you know, I, I always tell people this. I was in New York during 9-11, and if you lived through that and saw how wonderful that city came together, you, know, you are so proud. To, like, that is the flag you raise really high. Like I'm, You wave really proudly. I love being from there. But the way the city came together and just loved on each other and took care of each other. And so, yep, I'm always, I will wear that mantle proudly. It's fun. I'll tell you something funny. Last night I did a, a show at... Um, a retirement community, and a guy comes up to me and he goes, uh, where are you from? And I said, sir, I've never met you, but I can almost guarantee you I'm from where you're from. And I said, where are you from? He said, I'm from the Bronx. I said, I knew it. Like, I can hear it in his voice. <laughs> so I always spot my people. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, where in Brooklyn? I come from Brooklyn, from two of the toughest neighborhoods in Brooklyn, Brownsville and Bedford-Stuyvesant. Wow. Yes. So I, a lot of times in my comedy, I talk about my age. I'm 50, I'm 50, I'll be 53 in a couple, few weeks. And a lot of people get weirded out talking about their age. But see, I come from a place where a lot of people didn't make it to 53. So this is why I am very proud to say my age, because I come from two of the toughest neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And I survived it. For your mother, you're number what of how many? I'm an only child. Wow. Yeah, my mama's only baby. Wow. Yes. And I was just raised uh, as uh, by a single mother. So she's an amazing lady and she's my best friend. Is she down here now? She is in uh, a little rural town called Chadburn, North Carolina. So she's two and a half hours away. And in an odd kind of way, I followed her. So when she moved uh, to Chadburn, that town was way too small for this Brooklyn girl. So I needed to figure out the biggest city closest to her mm -hmm. that I was going to live in. So it was going to be either Charlotte or Raleigh. And I do uh, PR in my professional life, and I always wanted to do sports PR. And um, as the saying goes, you ever want to tell God a joke, tell him about your future plans. So I thought, I'm going to go to Charlotte and do sports PR because they had the better sports team, a professional sports team. Mm -hmm. Didn't do sports PR when I got here, but that's how I ended up in Charlotte as opposed to in her small town. Well, what kind of sports PR? What appeals to you? Like, I, you know, I, oh, I love PR um, in the sense that it's a 
a profession is highly transferable. Like, you know, you can do it in one industry. I like my background is I used to do it in books. I'm now doing it in television, but I used to do it in books. But the good thing is a very highly transferable skill. So I figured, oh, come work for the Panthers. Or at the time when I moved here, it was the Bobcats. Mm. And so, but it was like, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, what sports do you enjoy? What's your I'm favorite? Baseball. <laughs> really? And who's I your team? The New York Yankees. Oh. I know, I don't. God, you know I what's so funny? I, l- I love when people. Longtime Braves fan. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. we had a rivalry. You know, yeah. my one of my favorite times during baseball is that um, when you had Glavin and Smoltz and mm. and Maddox and yeah. and you know the Braves and Yankees were having those great rivalries. But remember that commercial? Um, oh gosh, it was during the time when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were hitting all those home runs. And they did this really great commercial with uh, was it Greg Maddox and uh, who's the other pitcher Tom Glavin, and he was like, I don't know, man, chicks dig the long ball. <laughs> was that was my favorite commercial, and I got a T-shirt with that. And people who didn't understand baseball thought it was just like some double entendre thing, which it was. But I was like, but it's a baseball reference. But I diehard baseball fan. I sense in you that you're a huge people person. I am I you know it's funny because so much of my life is you know I'm on you know whether it's PR whether it's comedy and so I like to say that I'm an introverted extrovert (laughs) because when I shut it down I like to shut it down like I'm all about people I'm all about and my whole thing is I like and the nature of being a PR person is like you promote everyone like it's never about me it's always about promoting you know who I'm working with or I just like seeing people win and seeing people be happy and, you know, however I can help with that. I love that. Even with my comedy, I always say that, you know, if I want to be able to have you be leave a show with me and it better than when you walked in. So you're right. It's always about kind of people and watching people and, and enjoying people be happy. So that's how do, true. How do you do, as someone in the promotions game, how do you do self-promotion? Well, it's funny because I tell people if I'm a PR person, I can't get PR for myself, then I should stop doing it. It's funny you should mention that because every, probably like two or three times a year, I host a clean comedy show at the Comedy Zone in uh, Charlotte. And it's the only family-friendly, completely family-friendly show. And so I try to get a lot of press around it to get people to come out. And thankfully, I've been very successful doing that. So, you know, I don't think I have any type of secret weapon I just think I need to know what to tap into you know um and it's all about messaging right what are you offering that other people are not offering so there are tons of comedians right not everyone's doing clean not everyone's doing family friendly um I remember at one of my shows I saw I pretty much knew everybody who was going to be there because either I work with them I knew them from church or something but I saw this father walking he had two teenagers I didn't know him so I went up and introduced myself and I said, hi, I'm Tara. I was like, hey, you know, how did you hear about the show? And he said he saw it somewhere, you know, an interview I did or something. And he said, I'd never been able to bring my kids to a comedy show before. And I was like, wow. So knowing that type of thing makes me know that um, this is this is how I need to kind of be on message with when I need to promote this. It's like, this is the only thing you can bring your kids to, you know, and they can have a good time. And I, 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 t- I tell my coworkers, it's so funny, the first time I did this show, and I was so excited, he brought his daughter, she was, looked to be about eight, 
And this kid looked like she didn't want to be anywhere near this. And so I'm like hugging everybody. And she looked at me like stranger danger, like don't touch me. And so after the show, she comes running up to me to hug me. She goes, that was amazing. And I said, you had fun? She goes, I had so much fun. And so that little girl is my why. <laughs> you know, yeah. so she's the reason I keep going on. So I don't necessarily think I, I mean, obviously having done PR, I probably have more contacts than the average person would and know who to reach out to. Um, but honestly, it's about just like honing your message and the right thing at the right time. Where do you go to church? The park with Bishop Claude Richard Alexander Jr. is my pastor. Okay. How long have you gone there? Um, since I moved to Charlotte, which was in 2003. So I've been a member of the park since then. How did you settle <clears throat> on that? How did you find a church home? Well, it was interesting because when I moved to Charlotte, I did not know anyone. <laughs> I knew no one here. And the other thing that was tough about moving here is I worked from home. So I moved to a new city and had no reason to go outside. So that was just like brutal. So every week I would go someplace to try to, you know, do things. <laughs> I always tell people, I used to go to movies every Friday and I went to see the movie Elf one Friday and I broke out and started crying because it was so New York centric that I missed home. <laughs> And um, a woman walked by. She goes, are you okay? I was like, I moved here and I don't know anybody. And um, But then I kept hearing things about the park. And I was like, I'm going to try it. And so I went uh, one Sunday and it just felt like home. And I've found m my people in the sense of community. And it is such a loving place and so supportive and just... I, I just love it so much. So it's like once I got connected to that church, honestly, is when I felt more connected to Charlotte. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's the famous line, I, it may have been MLK, who said the 11 o'clock Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. Why is that, do you think? I don't know. I just, but you know what's interesting is like in our church, we 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 have such a mix of people. So, I, I understand that sentiment so well, but I think culturally, I think we share, you know, we have different experiences, but I went to a church here one time, and I won't say the name of it, and it was such a cold experience, mm. and it was heartbreaking to me, because at the park, I used to be a greeter, and so I welcomed everybody, and to be perfectly honest with you, if you were of a different um, background, we welcomed you probably even more, because we wanted you to feel like you belong, you know, this is your place too. I remember going to this particular church, and it was the coldest feeling I had ever felt. And I was like, no church should ever feel like this. And I would never want anyone to feel like that. That's why, you know, honestly, when that whole thing, the murder happened in Charleston, when the, the guy went in and killed the people, the thing that broke my heart most about that is I know these people in the sense that I understood that when he walked in that door, they made him feel like, oh, no, come on, you know what I mean? And to think that he did that to these people who probably welcomed in just really crushed me because like I said I belong to a church that does that, that makes you feel welcome. You know, hopefully we're, we're understanding that, you know, when we get to heaven, if you believe in that thing, which I do, it's like everybody there is not going to look like you. You know what I mean? It's going to look like everybody. So I think once we figure that out, we'll start um, kind of realizing that, you know, we can worship together and, and have a good time together and that sort of thing. What church did you grow up in? I grew up in a Baptist church. I went to Brownsville Community Baptist Church, and my mom is a preacher, a.k.a. preacher's kid, Brian. PK, I'm okay. a PK. So I went to Brownsville Community Baptist Church, and it was one of those things where when you're a kid, 
And your mother's like, you're going to church on Sunday. And I was like, I don't want to go, but you're forced to go to church. But then when I got to be a certain age, I was like, I'm not really getting anything out of this. So I told my mom, I was like, I'm not really getting anything out of this. So I went to another church, which was called Elam International Fellowship, which was pastored by a wonderful man who has since passed away named Bishop Wilbur McKinley. And I feel like there is when I... um, started coming into my own spiritually and understanding like needing faith for myself and not like having my mother's faith. And then when I came uh, to Charlotte and got involved in the part, and this is so funny. I don't even know if my pastor remembers this because now I know him. I have to ask him if he remembers this. One time I saw him in a cheesecake factory and like completely lost my mind. Like, I, you know, how you see someone you're like, oh my God. And then he was just like, hi. And I have to ask him if he ever remembers like how nutty I went when I that saw him. You thought he person. was a rock star? Yeah, I treated him like he was a rock star and he was just like, hi. And I was like, oh my gosh. So I have to, I have, it's so funny. I have to see if he remembers that. But then, and he is so incredibly, I adore my pastor and he's just been so super supportive of me and encouraging me with my comedy and everything. Um, a lot of Christians can point to a, a moment where they uh, join the church or sometimes they'll say, quote-unquote, got saved. Can you point to a specific moment where you said, I'm making an intentional decision or I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I got saved at age blank, I joined the church, I whatever? Yeah. You know, for me, I don't think it was that because I felt like I got baptized, I feel like, when I was 14. And again, I think it was a lot of my mother like pushing this on me. So for me, it didn't feel so organic. But I think as I've gone on and had life experience, I got faith for myself. So I can't point to one moment and say, that's the, the, the moment I remember. But throughout my life, I've had these different instances where I just, you know, felt God with me and just it made such a difference. I'll tell you an interesting story. My mom actually got shot with a stray bullet when we were in Brooklyn, and it was um, one of the most terrifying uh, moments in my life. But uh, and I remember having to lean very heavily on my faith during that time. But how old were you? Oh gosh, when that happened, at some point in my thirties. But it's actually a funny story now. It wasn't funny then. My mom got married, remarried one day and shot the next. <laughs> and the, yeah, it was crazy. But what was interesting about it is, I can laugh about it now at the time, it was terrifying. But my mom had gone out uh, with her husband and they were, they had gone out for the day and they were parked in the car. And they were talking. And then apparently, when they got ready to get out both sides, these two guys were shooting at each other. And he shot her and she got shot in the back of her hip. And so everyone, like, hit the floor, and her husband says, let's go. And she goes, "Uh, I can't go with you. I've been shot. So so I'm nowhere near that. I, at the time, was living with my grandparents. And (laughs) I remember sitting, having dinner at the table with my grandfather, and my grandmother's answering the phone, and I just hear her say, what? What? And she hands the phone to my grandfather and says, Yeah, someone said Margaret got shot. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) She just said it so casually. And so we're trying to figure this out. What I didn't know when they called me was that I didn't know where she got shot. And I remember my mother just bought a fur coat, and I didn't know someone tried. I didn't know the details. Yeah, so I feel like I've had moments in my life where I've had to rely and lean on my faith a lot. Who was Jesus? What did he actually say as opposed to words that are attributed to him? 
you know, what do you believe? What, what can we generally settle on, he actually said. For me, I didn't grow up with my dad. And so what Jesus has always represented for me was that father figure who always took care of me and took care of me in times when I didn't even realize I needed to be taken care of. Like when you pack up and move to a city and you don't know anybody here, you know, different things like that. So it's like if I saw him, there would probably be something in me that would be a little intimidated because of this just like person who just means so much to me. But I would like to think that this is someone who I can run up to and hug and just like, you know, thanks for that, you know, and, and that sort of thing. Um, approachable. Yeah, I feel like he would be approachable. Not intimidating. No, I don't, yeah, I think I would be intimidated, but I think he would be approachable because honestly, for me, he always has been. And so I just, for me, he's someone who I rely on for Like, I don't everything. want to tell you this because you're going to be mad. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, but I just feel like I rely on him so much. I will tell you this. Um, my grandfather, who I referenced earlier, I was extremely close to. Like, he, when not growing up with my dad, my grandfather was just the, you know, whereas, you know, I always say he was my father on earth, whereas God is my father in heaven. But my, my grandfather was just my end-all, be-all. And my grandfather got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and that was just devastating to me and everyone was worried about how I was going to do it because they know we were super close because the thing that was funny with my grandfather is I was his oldest grandchild and he and you know he didn't have any grandsons so like he would try to get me to watch college sports and I hated college sports and he goes you're never going to appreciate him in the pros if you never watched him in college and I was like I don't know about that but I remember on the final day of his life uh September 4th 1999 and he was in uh Duke Hospital, and I was stayed with him, and there was nothing. Now it's funny, hindsight being twenty twenty. Of course, college sports are on Saturday. I didn't realize that at the time, so I looked over at him in the bed, and I was like, "Well, you got your wish. I have to watch college sports all day." <laughs> and so I remember having the opportunity to kind of talk to him, and I remember saying to him, "You know, thank you for everything you did for me." And at this point, the cancer was just he 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 was present, but you know not really talking, and I remember him trying to mouth the words to me, you're welcome. And so I got to be with him when he took his final breath, and to me, it was one of the hardest but yet most beautiful things that has ever happened to me in my life, and that, to me, I thank God for giving me that gift because he knew that's what I needed, and it was just me and him, as it always was, because my mother said when I was a kid, um, my mom and I used to live with my grandparents, and she said the craziest thing about you, she goes, you would never go to sleep until he came home. She goes, and then you would crawl in the bed and go right to sleep. So it just always felt like um, that God had given me that gift to have the last voice, my, this person who I love more than anything here. That's the kind of stuff I can't put into words about what God means to me, you know? Mm-hmm. What are you most grateful for? Um, that's a really Sounds good question. Like family. Yeah, like I'm grateful. I mean, I'm you have gr- such yeah. strong. I'm, I'm grateful for my mom. I'm grateful, like I said, my grandfather was just everything to me. I'm grateful for my mom teaching me about faith and for having it for myself and, you know, and just knowing that she's super supportive of me. My mom and I, like I said, she's my best friend. And I'm, I think I'm probably most grateful for her and the things she's instilled in me and to treat people with respect and kind, to be kind to people and that sort of thing. And again, gr- and I'm grateful for community because the thing too, when you're an only child, people take you into themselves. Like 
I talked about growing up in two of the roughest neighborhoods in Brooklyn, but let me tell you something. It never felt unsafe to me because I grew up in community. It was I grew up during a time where you could stay outside as long as Miss So and So was outside. You when she goes upstairs, you come upstairs. And then if you did something wrong, she got to discipline you and then your mother disciplined you. So I grew up with community. I grew up with a lot of people who looked out for me. I grew up next door to this family called the Robinsons, who I'm still close to to this day. And and so I, I, I love community. When I moved to Charlotte, and like I said, I got connected to my church and a life group. I belong to a life group of women who are just so amazing and who love on me and support me and pray for me and just make sure I'm okay. <laughs> I, I tell the story, it's so funny. Um, I call them like the mafia because they show up. Like you don't, even when you don't want them to show up, they show up. And I remember one time, uh, my blood sugar uh, shot through the roof, and I wasn't feeling well. So I called the head of our life group. I said, "Look, I'm going to go to the emergency room, but I'm okay." And so I'm in the emergency room, and I'm watching like an episode of Law and Order or something. And I hear one of the women yelling, "Where's Tara Brown's room?" And I was like, "Oh my God, the mafia is here!" But like they don't <laughs> mess around. So I'm thankful. For that I belong to this community. You know, so community is important to me. Family and community is the things I'm grateful and for. After Black Lives Matter, what do you think is we are called upon? How are we called upon to shift? What would Christ call upon Christians to do in that historic moment? For me, um, Christianity starts and ends with love, right? And I just feel like if we follow the example of Christ's love, we will be fine. But it's just like when people start bending Christianity to mean what they need it to mean or to kind of, you know, make their points be what they need it to be, that's where it gets really diluted and crazy. You know, love your neighbor, um, things like that. So when do we stop you're my brother. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm going to treat you like I'm going to treat a biological brother. And the thing that hurts me more than anything is to watch our people just cast people aside and just wave a Christian flag. I'm like, everybody who says they're Christian are not following uh, Christian principles. So I get really upset when I hear people say things that are in the name of Jesus that are not in the name of Jesus. So for me... like. Like when they try to say, you know, they have one, and I don't want to get into kind of, you know, kind of castigating a particular group, but when you have one issue that you're concerned about, i.e. abortion, but you don't care about, you know, uh, refugees and immigrants and that kind of thing, you care about, you know, life, life at uh, conception, but you don't care about the life that happens once people are born. I have a problem with that. So if you're going to care about this, you got to care about all of this. So I think when people start picking and choosing the things they're going to care about, it's like, oh, that's Christian, but that's not Christian. That's where I think we run into problem. One of the most powerful movies that was kind of a one and done for me, I was like, I can never watch this again, was the movie 12 Years a Slave. Mm. And when they, uh, these slave owners were using the Bible to for their needs so that they can get these slaves to obey, but just you know, casting out other things. It was so incredibly disturbing. And so that's for me what, what, like if it starts and ends with love and if we start treating people and seeing people as God sees us, um, because, you know, the funniest thing is like we're sitting here casting 
judgment on other people, but we start pulling back the layers. We all are a mess. <laughs> we all have stuff that we're dealing with, and who are we to judge people and whatever? So when we start treating people like less than human beings, this is when we're going to have some trouble. Brian and I were just talking before the show about uh, comics, that comics are notoriously, among all performers, who are pretty messed up yeah. <laughs> to begin with, yeah. whether they're actors or musicians or whatever, um, comics seem particularly damaged. Um, you seem particularly together as <laughs> a comic. I know that the family-friendly portion and the clean portion probably come out of your core ethics mm -hmm. and beliefs. How are you able to be funny when you're not uh, coming out of some sort of terribly damaged or broken place? Well, I wouldn't say that I'm not um, damaged or broken. Um, I might not be damaged and broken in one area, but I could be another. Listen, I told you I didn't grow up with my dad, so there are feelings I deal with with abandonment. Even at my age now, there's a feeling you feel like you can feel unwanted. Or when even in you know, um, romantic relationships or even in friend relationships, when people leave, you feel like, what, what was it about me? Like, you know, so I wouldn't say that I'm not damaged. I probably just not damaged in a way that other people are. I struggle with my weight. So it's just like, those are things I deal with every day. You know, am I good enough? Do I look this person? Did I not get this opportunity because I was overweight? Did, you know, so I wouldn't say that I'm not damaged. I think, you know, I think you have to forge ahead because this is who I am in this moment. And what am I going to do? I don't like, you know, everything about who I am, but I'm not going to also stop living. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and then, um, personally, there are things about myself I wish were better. I don't have a high tolerance for foolishness. <laughs> you know, I get, um, my patience gets short. Uh, I can be quick tempered. So I think we all have our stuff. You know, it's just how we deal with it. So I wouldn't say that I'm not damaged or broken. I'm just what you see. Well, I, that means I'm I'm doing a good job. So you don't see it so much. That's good. Yeah, and also comics. I've seen there's this kind of jealousy. Oh my gosh! And uh, <laughs> like um, I've seen actors who are genuinely supportive of one another. Now some of them will like try to cut the legs out from somebody, but. Um, there are certain artistic communities where someone is genuinely happy when someone else gets the gig because they're like, well, mine will be down the, the right, like whatever. So <laughs> to what extent, um, like how are you able to, if you see somebody else blow up or they get the gig, uh, how are you able to say, you know what, I really am happy for that person? Or if this is supposed to happen for me, it'll yeah. come uh, whether it's money, fame, you know, power, you know, yeah. limos and, you know, trips back to New York, your HBO special, your Netflix special, you know. Speak it, to, speak it. Yeah. Well, you <laughs> yeah. know, I mean, I, I can certainly see it. Oh, thank you. It's tough. I'm not going to lie to you. Com comedy is definitely, you know, it, it's a competitive sport and, um, but what you have to you have to play the long game with comedy. There's just if you're gonna be in this thing, it has to be for the long haul. And what you come to realize is that things are very cyclical. And I remember when I first started out, and there were people getting opportunities that I wasn't getting, and I was like, "Let me—is my phone working? Like, why are people not calling me?" 
And, you know, and I stayed the course, and now I'm thankful that things are happening for me. Um, one of the greatest things I had happened last year is I got to open up at Belk Theater, which was amazing. And But it's staying the course. And so I feel like if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, um, you can be happy for other people. But I'm not going to lie to you. It gets tough. When you see someone get an opportunity that you thought you would be good for, I don't, there's, if, if a comic tells you differently, they would be lying. If there's for even half a second, you're like, hmm, and you're like, okay, <laughs> you know. But I try to be happy for folks. I think for me, too, it probably is a bit easier for a couple of reasons. I'm a woman of a certain age doing comedy, um, so I'm going to have opportunities that other people get, and I might not be right for other opportunities, and that's okay, too. I remember when I first... Uh, started doing comedy. I did an open mic uh, in Atlanta. And afterwards, the guy who was booking the room came up to me and says, you're really funny. He goes, I just want you to know you're going to get booked on shows for reasons that have nothing to do with you being funny. They might need a black woman on the show. They might need an older woman on the show. And I was like, you know, so I, I kept that in the back of my head that, you know, you might not get booked for a variety of reasons that don't have anything to do with you not being the funniest person in the room. I think a lot of time, and I've experienced um, jealousy 100% in this. And um, but I think the the best way to combat that is you keep you you have to have tunnel vision with this. You have to keep moving ahead and doing your thing. And again, like I said, I work clean. So again, there are a lot of different lanes that are going to be opened up to me that won't be opened up to someone who works blue. I get. You know, in addition to doing clubs, I can do uh, churches and corporate, and I've done casinos. And, you know, last night I did something in the retirement community. And it's funny, the older guy said to me, who I told you is from New York, he goes, you can tell us dirty jokes. We'll be okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't have any, sir, but okay. Um, so I think it's probably, a, I won't say easier, but I tend to not get jealous because I have a different lane. And, again, I'm like, if someone's getting something that wasn't my lane, I'm like, and I'm so happy for a lot of, uh, you know, my comedy co colleagues who are winning. The other thing for me is I'm, I try to be super supportive of the women in our comedy community because it's tough being a woman, a woman, uh, comic. So I've always tried to make myself available to people who needed me to be. And it's so funny. One of the comedians, a uh, comedian named Chris Mons gave me the nickname, which I adore. He calls me the godmother of the Charlotte comedy scene. So I, I, I wear that with pride. So I try to be here for anyone who needs me to be here. And yeah, but it, it is a, a very competitive community. There's something hugely different about being the godmother than being the queen bee. No, I don't you know, me. I mean, yeah. because <laughs> Godmother uh, is supportive, you know, nurturing. Yes. And all that. And that's what I've tried to be, and I really hope that I have been to um, comics on our scene. So when he gave me that name, that just touched me, and I really wear that with the sense of um, responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Well, God bless. You too. The road to comic is relatively narrow and relatively prescribed. Yeah. And that means you're subject to, like, nice, big, cushy audiences like the Belk, but you're also, like, doing laundromat openings or whatever. You're oh, doing I've done the what... pizza bar opening. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it's funny because I love it. It's all very – that's the other thing with this thing. Stay humble. I, if I can tell 
when I first started out, I, I'm going on eight years in May doing this, and I'm still honestly a baby in certain regards doing comedy. But when I first started out, I tried to learn a lot. I didn't think that I was, you know, worthy of this just yet. And now, it's funny, these new crop of comedians I see coming up, there's a sense of entitlement that I wouldn't have dreamed of having. And I remind people all the time, stay humble with this thing, because like I said, it's cyclical. You can be riding high one minute, and I've seen people who I started out with who are not doing it anymore for a variety of reasons, but you stay humble, because I just, when I see the, the word that, the two words that kill me when I see people say it that bug me, it's like, I killed. Like, you did well. <laughs> Relax. <laughs> you know, I killed. And I'm Well, like, how, yeah. how often do people go, wow, that was a great audience. Like, they were yeah. very giving. Or they were my people. Or yeah. I seemed like I was in tune with this audience. Or I wasn't in tune with another audience. Like, how often do people go you've really been a great audience. Yeah. Like, I, like, this is because of you that this worked out so well. Well, you know, you're taught in comedy that the audience is, it's never the audience. And I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that anymore, but um, you, 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 some audiences are going to be better than others. For me, when I get the opportunity to play a, a, a 55 plus community, those are my people. <laughs> you know, that's always going to be a more fun from room for me than, you know, I'm not your comedian who would work in a college campus. You know what I mean? So um, I just think anytime you have something that's relatable, uh, and it's funny because comedy is just, man, when you think about, again, you never know. When a person, what a person is walking into the room with, and I remember doing a show once, and afterwards a girl come up, came up to me, she's like, "My dad recently died, and it's the first time I've been out the house. Thank you for ma helping me to laugh." And I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" But you get to do that and help impact someone's day is so amazing. The fact that you can think of something in your head, form it into a joke, and someone thinks it's funny. There's no better feeling like that in the yeah. world. You need to make it easy for them to laugh. Say it's okay to laugh. You're not working for me. I'm working for exactly. you. Exactly. And I'll tell you this. We talked about me at Belk, and that was m the most amazing experience of my career. But I was telling jokes to a room of 2,181 people. You never forget that number. <laughs> you know, 2,181 people. The law of averages is I'm going to make someone laugh. When you really have won is if you're in a room of 10 people and you can make those 10 people laugh. And I remember saying that to somebody recently. I said, that is more of a challenge right there. You have a large room of people. You're going to get people to laugh. I said, but when you can make a small room, and I remember doing an event at a church, and we must have had eight people. And I did, I must have did like uh, 45 minutes or something, and I made those eight people laugh. That, to me, that's when you win. And so even last night when I did this event at this retirement community, Half the people were deaf, and it was so funny because half the room said, you're too loud. She's not loud enough, and, so, and I'm trying to temper my voice to help, so I'm telling jokes like this, and so afterwards, a woman comes to me back. She goes, honey, you were cute, but we could hardly hear you, oh <laughs> so it's just, but it's love. I love it because it builds your character, and so it's great. If we get struck by lightning right now, and the only thing that survives is this little piece of digital audio... What is your legacy? Oh, my gosh. I would like to think my legacy is I rooted for people. I cheered them on. I helped people in some sort of way that people felt better after having been around me.
Yes, I feel better. Oh, thank you, Stuart. I feel better. So thanks for having me. Tara Brown, thank you for doing this. Thank you. You can see Tara Brown at the Comedy Zone and popping up at clubs around the country, around the Southeast. And I, I just wish her nothing but the best. You know, really talented. And um, I think her, you know, she's reaching the people she needs to reach. She's really s- spreading a lot of joy. And so I, I just hugely admire her. Thank you, Tara Brown. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported Man Listening from the very beginning. Uh, We're getting ready to do some things differently along the way. And um, I hugely appreciate the people who were there in the very beginning and have stuck with us. So thank you for listening. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks. Thanks.